We welcome you tonight here at Legacy Conference, looking out and seeing many familiar faces with our church family, but recognizing we have many new faces here among us tonight. Perhaps you've been invited by a family member or a friend. If you're here visiting this evening for Legacy, we especially greet you and are glad that you are here. For our Legacy Conference, as we mentioned earlier, our theme is the glory of the Father. That when you look to the pages of scripture, this one God has revealed himself, and as he's revealed himself, that for all of time and before time, for all of eternity, he has always existed as one God, yet simultaneously three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all that God does, God does as one, and yet as we look in scripture, whether we look at creation, whether we look at his sovereignty and providence, or especially when we look at salvation, it's as if scripture will shine the spotlight and highlight in a unique, distinct way the glory of each person and how they work and act in creation, providence, and salvation. And so before us, we seek to follow the spotlight and distinct glory that shines upon God the Father. That's what we seek to do this upcoming Legacy Conference. To help us tonight, to begin our first session, we welcome to the pulpit Pastor Rick Anderson. Rick Anderson began in law, a graduate of Notre Dame, and yet like many preachers in church history, beginning in law, God redirected his steps into pastoral ministry. He received training at the Master's Seminary, graduating in one of the first graduating classes at Master's, and then upon graduation began pastoring the same church that he pastors now today. As I heard earlier, 33 years at Faith Community Church in Oxnard, California. Praise the Lord for that. Pastor Rick Anderson has been a leader in the network known as the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals, a wonderful collection of believers who come together and fellowship around the word. And yet, most importantly, uh, married to Penny with three children and ten grandchildren. Praise the Lord for that as well. (laughs) Pastor Anderson is going to open our conference with our first session. Come and minister the word of God to us. Thank you, Danny. I don't recognize any of your faces, so you're all new to me, but I'm I'm glad to be here and have the privilege of dealing with this subject matter. It is is a subject matter that I myself was challenged to consider about uh, 13 years ago. And Danny was there at the Master's College at that time when uh, the particular assignment I had to speak at the college chapel was the distinct glory of the Father. And so it is a challenging uh, matter to approach it that way, to divide the indivisible, Uh, but we will do that through the Word of God tonight. I'd like to have you open your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 1.
I'm going to start with verse 3 and read through verse 14. That will enable me to introduce this subject and cover everything that Anthony wants to cover. We've discussed this. Let us pray before we read the scriptures. Our Father, we come with our hearts always desiring, as Moses prayed, show me your glory, that we might behold it. Father, we behold your glory in the face of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord, whom the Spirit himself glorifies, that we might see you more clearly through him. And Father, now we come to consider you, our Father, and that special relationship which you have condescended, as it were, that we might enjoy. The creatures in fellowship, communion, in familial relationship with the creator of the universe. Thank you for this privilege. Thank you for your word that you've given to us. Father, we cannot understand it, nor can we hold it, nor can we walk in it apart from the Spirit nor can I speak it as I ought and faithfully and clearly without your spirit. And so we plead, O blessed spirit, will you equip us and help us, guide us and teach us, convict us and fill us, Lord, with joy as we behold your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he, that is the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He, the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, the Father, according to the kind intention of his the Father's will, to the praise of the glory of His, the Father's grace, which He, the Father, freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He, the Father, lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to his, the Father's, kind intention, which he, the Father, purposed in him, Jesus Christ. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his, the Father's purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his, the Father's will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his, the Father's glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His, the Father's glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, Paul says, For us there is one God, the Father, 
from whom are all things, and we exist for him. The scriptures, as Danny said and gave us that brief introduction, reveal that there is only one true and living God. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one God. This, the New Testament itself, also clearly affirms. This, in fact, Jesus himself, in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We believe there is one God the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. The Scriptures also reveal, however, primarily in the New Testament, that that one God uniquely exists or subsists as three distinct co-eternal and co-equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. Each of those persons is equally, simultaneously, eternally God. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. The three are one God in substance, same in substance, equal in power and glory. We worship a triune God, unique. This is a truth that is not discovered By men, it's not a truth that was developed by men. This is a truth that is revealed by God. There is no way a man could come to conceive, even us ourselves who have it revealed to us, the whole nature of this trinity, uh, trinitarian nature of God himself. I remember reading an account of a pastor who on Sunday morning told his congregation, What I'm going to do is I'm going to explain the Trinity to you tonight. So he made that promise, and as that pastor walked through the town, he saw a man uh, from his own congregation. He was sitting by a little river that went through the town. And as he was sitting by the river, he had a spoon, and he was dipping it into the water and just putting it onto the ground. Dipping it into the water, putting it on the ground. The pastor says, what are you doing? He says, I'm going to drain this river dry. He says, you can't do that. And he says, nor can you explain the Trinity. (laughs) So if you're looking for explanation, I won't give it. What I will give you is, what I'll seek to do is description. In description. And that's what we'll do. Because this, this reality, as we know, in many ways is, in fact, Practically, it's, it's veiled in the Old Testament. It's hidden by God's purposes because his desire in that Old Testament is to magnify and emphasize the unity of God. That this God, in the midst of a plurality of gods and false God, is the one and the true and living God. But this one and true living God who reveals himself in the unity of his nature in the Old Testament reveals himself in the triunity of his Godhead in the new. And oftentimes that comes through fragmentary expressions in the New Testament. 
It isn't formalized. There's no formalized description of the Trinity. It's found, in its, it's found, as it were, in solution, as Benjamin Warfield said, in solution throughout the New Testament, in parts that need to be brought together. And so we're going to consider that. They, there is no formalized statement of this. In fact, Warfield says the proof of the Trinity is not so much in the description, but in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was, in the, it was in the very act of God's manifestation and sending of his Son and the Spirit that we ourselves begin to understand the nature of that triunity. You remember the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 3 as he enters into those waters of identification with sinners. The Son of Man himself identifies with our race and takes our place in that signal event. And you remember at that event, as he comes up himself out of the water while praying, we are told that the Holy Spirit descends in a form of a dove upon him. And from heaven a voice comes and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And the triune God meets in all of those issues right there. We see him manifested in the the, uh, multitude of, we would say, his persons. In that attestation, as it were, and that anointing of the Lord Jesus Christ for his ministry, we see all these things. This is a, this is a mysterious truth. It is, it is easier, as I said, to just affirm it rather than to describe it. But interestingly, as we come to the New Testament, it's, it's unforced. There is kind of an ease and natural expression in the divine writers, and that's why I open with Ephesians chapter 1. As we read it, we don't find conflict, we don't find tension, we find description of a wonderful work of God, a wonderful work of the Son, and a wonderful work of the Spirit. And this Ephesians is an example of that. We find an example, for example, another example in 2 Corinthians at the very end, where Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. And we find these numerous expressions of Trinitarian description. Or John, in 1 John 5, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. As we think about the Trinity, and as we we come to deal with this matter of distinction, which I am assigned to deal with, Uh, We need to keep two concepts in mind, unity, unity, and distinction. Unity and distinction. We see this, for example, in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And there we have, have, uh, well, it goes on, and the Word was with God, distinction We have a word that was with God, before God, face to face with God. And then we have identity. The word was God. What distinguishes each of the persons in the Trinity is not their nature. They are, as I said, eternal, all of them, co-equal, the same of substance. What distinguishes them is the relationships that they have with one another and as they work those relationships and roles out in the created order and in redemption. It is not so much, it is not a distinction in terms of who they are in terms of their godhood, 
but in terms of their function and role. And that's what I want to deal with as we look at this subject matter. We find this distinction even here. Blessed be the God who chooses. Blessed be the Son who gives himself through his blood. Blessed is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies and seals us. And all of these things come out through this. And so we see this, or, or we find, for example, in 1 Peter 1, 2, as he speaks of believers describing them as chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. And all those things are just simply exemplary and representative of the fullness of the New Testament with regard to those issues. We find, for example, in 2 Corinthians 1.21, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit as a pledge. So we have this distinction declared, and that's what I want to deal with, is this distinction. To set out this role and relationship in terms of the Father, this ordering of, of roles that they have. And as I do so, I want to be careful of unscrewing the inscrutable and opening up things. You're trying to be careful as we deal with the subject matter of the Trinity. But it is a glorious truth. It's a blessed truth. Rather than systematizing the truth, it, it appears that the apostolic writers were engaged in doxology and worship. And theology worth singing about is the theology of the glory of God, and especially the Father. I feel like, as I go through this and we'll open this up, like that little boy in the Far Side cartoon. You remember Farside, the little boys in the classroom, they had the big little cheeks and sitting there and he raises his hand and says, teacher, may I be excused because my brain is full. And when you study the Trinity, that's what you feel like. May I be excused, my brain is full. So what I want to do is set out these, this distinction. I don't, I don't want your minds spinning. Rather, I pray that your minds might be stirred to think of these distinctions and that I'm going to set forth concerning the Father, that we might appreciate, as it were, uh, these blessed distinctions as we think about our God and Father as we will be uh, the rest of this week, this weekend. And so let me set them out. And really in the same spirit as one of the church fathers, he said it this way, he says, I cannot think about the one without quickly being encircled by the splendor of the three. Nor can I discern the three without being straightaway carried back to the one. And so in a sense, we, we move through there, and there's five distinctions I want to set forth. Five distinctions with regard to the Father in terms of the Trinity. First, it's this. The God, the Father, is the primary purposer and perfecter of all that comes to pass. The Father, God the Father, is the primary purposer and perfecter of all that comes to pass. There's a certain priority as we go through the scriptures, and especially in the new, as it begins to open these things up for us. There's a priority that is ascribed to the Father, both in the Old and in the New Testament. The Father occupies first position. The purpose, the good purpose, the initiative of the work of creation and redemption belong to Him belong to him. The father is the first causer. The father is the divine originator. He's the initiator, orderer, predestinator, purposer, 
and promiser and perfecter of his will. Anthony will deal with that subject more fully uh, tomorrow. And I don't want to take any of that away from him. But as, as I looked over at these things and they were assigned to us, he's the one who designs and ordered the cosmos. He is the one whose will the, fa- the Son and the Spirit carry out. It is his will that we live under, and it's according to his will that we ourselves are saved and also glorified. And so as we look at this in Isaiah 46.10, he is the one who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He knows the end from the beginning because he determines it all from the beginning. Everything works out according to his plan and purpose. He's the primary purposer. Notice Ephesians 1 as it sets out this blessed activity in terms of our salvation as the prime mover, we might say. He chose us in love and out of his own affection. He predestined us to adoption according to the kind intention of his will. And so as we think of all these things, as we think of the work of Christ and the wonderful work of the Spirit, understand that all of it it comes out of the kind intention and purpose of the Father. The kindness of the Father, it is not the Son himself trying to make the Father kind. It is the kindness and love and purpose of the Father that the Son himself, out of love, goes to fulfill the kind intention of his will. According to his purpose, he made known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his purpose, of his plan. The administration for history, as it were. According to the kind intention of his will, which he purposed in Christ. A purpose that involves summing up all things at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ in the end. We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. It is all the Father, it is all his will that Paul himself as he opens up this this marvelous benediction and blessing blessed be the God of Father and Father who himself has purposed and brought all of this about according to his will and pleasure and purpose and kind intention. His will undergirds everything that comes to pass. His will is primary and supreme. Or another word just simply is sovereign. It's the Father. It's the Father in emphasis. And again, not, not, to, not to derogate in any kind of way the activity of the Son and the Spirit in this. But as far as revelation is concerned, this is the distinct glory of the Father. He is the, he is the promiser and he is the performer as well. We read these words as, as, he, as he himself who purposes is the one then who in the scripture promises what he himself has purposed. We see this in the very opening of, of Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1 we, will, we, we get this picture of, of the promise of God and the performance of God. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. What the Father purposes, he carries out. 
According to the promise of eternal life, we're told in, in, uh, in Titus, again, uh, an introduction part, Paul, a bond servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. He purposes it, he promises it, and he carries it out. This God who began a work in you will do what? He will complete it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for God is at work in you to will and to do His good pleasure. And now all of this works out according to this way. This way. Uh, This is 2 Timothy 1.9. According to His own purpose we were saved by the grace which was granted to us in Jesus Christ from all eternity. He is the one who causes all things to work together for good to those who are called by Him, those He predestined, those He justified, and those He glorified. We have this performance of God, the promise of God, the fulfillment of all of those things. And the purpose is is that we might be conformed to His Son, The Father is the one, Jesus says, who sets the seating order in glory. The Father is the one who determines the season of the Son's return. All of the planning, all of the administration of redemption, creation, and all of history is is in the hands of the Father. He He is the marvelous author and mover of all of these things. Peter writes, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. The one who lays, puts you in Christ, in whom every spiritual blessing is found, is the one that will see that you are perfected in Jesus Christ. The one who purposed to call you and draw you to himself, to carry out all of his holy purpose and will, it all comes through the Father. Faithful is he who calls you, Paul says to the Thessalonians, he will do it. That's the glory of the Father. So for from the beginning, before the beginning, through initial creation, through to the ultimate consummation of all things, of the new heavens and new earth, everything in between, the Father himself stands behind all of it as the willer and performer and perfecter of all of these things. This is the glory of God. This is the, the glory. Does, will he fulfill his will? Can anyone prevent him from doing that? Can he, will he ever be frustrated with regard to what he does and what he purposes and, and with regard to his will concerning those who belong to him? We ought to have great confidence for this one who is the Alpha and the Omega and the one everything in between. The psalmist says in 132, I love this, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my and your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. This is the glory of the Father. He will accomplish what concerns you. And there will be nothing that will turn that away. All that we see taking place and all that we really, much that we don't even understand how it will come to completion, he knows, he purposes. It will all work out according to his perfect will. Second, second, 
I didn't take too much from Anthony at all. Second, this is, the, second, this is uh, obvious, but we say it. The Father, God, the Father is the gracious sender of the Son and the Spirit. This one who has purposed all things and to bring them to pass has purposed that he will work through the Son and the Father to accomplish all his holy will, not only in creation, but especially his will to save and his will to consummate all things to his glory. The Spirit and the Father, excuse me, the the Son and the Spirit fill them out. They, they are, as it were, the Father makes, as it were, and again, I'm, I, I'm just speaking analogically here, as it were, a delegation. A delegation of divine active agents, co-equal, co-eternal, the Son and the Spirit, to carry out His purpose. Whatever the Father does, He does through the Son, by the Spirit. And this is evident in creation, as I'll speak about that tomorrow. Uh, but it's also manifested in, in recreation, salvation, uh, and consummation. So these agents, the, the Son and the Spirit, are not free agents. They're attached by their own will and pleasure, by their own essence, to the will of God. There is, there is a distinction in the Trinity, but there's no division at all in the purpose and pleasure of each of those persons of the Godhead. But they are carrying out all of the good pleasure of the Father. I have come down from heaven, said the incarnate Son, not to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. The Son is all about pleasing the Father. The Son is all about carrying out God's good pleasure in redemption. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Jesus says in His priestly prayer, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. In Gethsemane, as He, as he bled out blood from His pores, as, as He anticipated the Holocaust that was waiting Him on Golgotha, it was there that He said, Not my will, but Thine be done. Crying out in the, the realness of his humanity and the tension which that created. And yet submitting it all, as it were, to the Father's will. It is the Father's will that the Son carries out. And this is the glory of God. This is the glory of Christ that he himself pleases the Father. And there is a certain subordination. There is, there is as it were, a, a, a role, as it were, a submission of, of the Spirit and the and the Son to the Father. But understand, and again, this is probably one of those things that might be unique. Distinction in role has nothing to do with inferiority or superiority. The Father, the Son submitted to the Father, and he submitted to Mary and Joseph, didn't he? And when he submitted to Mary and Joseph, was he inferior? Not inferior, he was obedient. He was faithful according to all the purpose of the Father. Role distinctions are, are carried out in terms of accomplishing the will and purpose of God. They have nothing to do with whether the one who has to submit is inferior or not. And it's modeled here in the very Trinity itself. 
They come and there's, there is this subordination, but it doesn't imply inferiority. It doesn't mean that any of them became less than fully God, nor is that possible. It was just simply, again, uh, a matter of role and function and carrying out the will and pleasure of the Father. Both of them, the Spirit and the Son, we might say are Emmanuel. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, as it were, in his physical incarnation. The Holy Spirit, even more marvelously, indwells us personally. There is no closer identification with our race than the Spirit himself indwelling us. But this is all for the purpose of the Father. The Son is sent to reveal the Father, accomplish his redemption, mediate his kingdom. The Spirit is sent to apply that redemption to the hearts of men that the Father may have those whom he himself has chosen. It is all in in a marvelous coordination of, of work. Beloved, we're, we're the beneficiaries, really, of a divine trifecta. Now, if it's a betting term, it's when you bet on the first, second, and third horse, and you win them all. It's a, it speaks of a triple blessing, and, and as we look at this trinity, this is what we need to understand, that in the midst of the, of the Father uh, having His will and the Spirit and the Son carrying out that will and bringing it to fruition, we have God acting with God for us. You remember, I'm the shepherd lays down my life for the sheep, and no one can snatch them out of my hand, right? The grip of the Son of God, but what does He say? My Father, who has given them to me, nobody can snatch them out of His hand. And then what we're told in Ephesians, we've been sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. Now you try to break the triple grip of God. Beloved, that's the reality. That's the reality of what we live with, this glorious, this glorious reality that they are locked together to carry out the will of the Father, these, these blessed, these blessed agents themselves to whom we bow and confess their deity. We have fullness that we don't even understand. In other words, all I'm saying here is that if we would understand, as it were, and I'll speak of some other issues with regard to this, 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 in, in this incredible coordination and union of the triune God in his distinctness of persons being the one who enables us to live and serve him and anticipate glory. Third, moving through here, Third, God the Father is the chief giver of every good and perfect gift. He's the chief giver of every good and perfect gift. What did we sing? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. God himself is the planner, the promiser, the purposer, the perfecter. God himself is the one who sends the Son and the Spirit that they themselves as his divinely authorized agents, as it were, will carry out his pleasure and purpose. And he is the one who gives every good and perfect gift, as James says. He's all good. And I like how Peter describes him in 1 Peter 5.10. Think of him this way. The Father is the God of all grace. He's the Father of all grace. And that is great and good. 
This is what he does. He's not stingy with his riches. He gives to all generously without reproach, he says in James. From him, says the doxology, are all things. Yes, in terms of their source, but also in terms of their blessing comes from him. This is the glory of God himself. Blessed be the God and Father, Paul says, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We lack nothing. The Father has blessed us in everything. And He is pleased to put all the riches of His glory and grace into the work and person of His Son that we ourselves may come to that treasure house and enjoy those riches. It's all given to us by the Father. In fact, it's given to us because he gave the Son to us and gave him to us that we ourselves by faith may partake of all the riches of his blessing. He gave the Spirit to us that we might be our eyes opened to see the glory and riches and fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we ourselves may know him even more and trust him even better. He gives the Son of his love. He gives the Spirit. Jesus says, Little flock, he's chosen to give you the kingdom. He's chosen to give you an inheritance. He's chosen to make you his own children. He's chosen to give you everything good that you need. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Blessed is the man, woman, boy, or girl who trusts in him. This is the blessing. We have a rich God, and he is not stingy, and his giving is not stunted. As we looked at Ephesians itself, we, we see those, the wording that, that, that the apostle uses here. It says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, verse 6, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. We have redemption through Jesus Christ, the cleansing of sins, according to, it says, the riches of his grace. He doesn't hold it with a tight fist. The riches of his grace, which it says, he lavished upon us. This is what he does. This is what he is willing to do. He loves and delights to lavish his grace upon us. Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 7. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and trespasses and sins made us alive together with Christ. I mean, these, these are the blessings, four through seven. He raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. What for? What for? In order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is his eternal purpose? His eternal purpose is to lay out the bounty of all that he is to us through his son according to his kind intention. He intends to do us good for eternity. This is the character of the Father. It all comes out of the bounty of what He has. There is no Father like this. You being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Jesus says He gives good, yea, He gives the Spirit. He gives life. 
This, all of this comes from him. And he who did not spare his son, Paul takes the argument farther. If he gave his own son for us, how will he not with him freely give us what? All things. Our problem, God himself is full. And he's glad to communicate his fullness. The problem is our weakness. And sometimes our reluctance to trust a God who has given himself and given his son and given his spirit and is designed to give all of the fullness of his goodness to us for the rest of eternity. This is the purpose, this is what we need to understand. The glory of God freely bestowed. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in everything, you may be able to do good to others. You understand the application of that one. Why is God good to us? That we ourselves might reflect his mercy and goodness to others. He will fill us up that we ourselves may live for his glory, that we ourselves may show mercy, that we ourselves may speak grace and impart grace. This is what it's all for. The Father doesn't want to pour out his mercies into dry holes, but those themselves who are so astonished at the fullness of what he has and gives us. And, and that's, that's what accounts the ministry of Paul itself, it seems to me. 1 Corinthians 15.10 I labored more than all of them. You boaster. You braggart. Yet not I. Yet not I, but what? The grace of God. The best and greatest workers in the kingdom are those who themselves will lay hold of the goodness and fullness that God himself is willing to give to his people. Laying themselves out, laying themselves down, knowing that he himself will supply for our own lack. What are we? We are nothing. We can do nothing. We can really impart nothing apart from Christ and the fullness of the grace of God that comes through him. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And it's interesting whether he's talking about the gift of the Macedonians or whether he's thinking of the Son. But think of the Son then. And when you think of the Son, think of the Father who did not spare him that he might pour out the riches of his grace to you. To our Father we owe our deepest thanks. And it is out of the abundance of our Receiving grace that we ought to ourselves give grace. It is the blessing from whom all blessings flow. The goodness of God, the greatness of God flows through those very channels that he himself has given to us. The Son and the Spirit. So that brings me to number four. Fourth, God the Father is the ultimate object of prayer, communion, and fellowship. Now, that might sound surprising. I said he is the ultimate object. I didn't say he's the exclusive. But I said ultimately. Where does your worship end? Where does your worship end? Does it end with him, the Father? Because what did Jesus do everything he did for? That he might bring us to God. 
Everything that the sun did, we come to the sun, we rejoice in the sun, and we ought to. The sun is central in all of our redemption and our way of enjoying the mercies and grace of all that God himself has intended. But all of it is intended for that when we come at the end of our day in our life, we are coming to God. And we'll deal with that matter of communion with him, I think, on Sunday. We'll deal with that. As the Father sent the Son and Spirit to mediate His blessings, so we come through the Son and the Spirit to Him. And we bring our praises, we bring our acknowledgement, we bring our prayers, we bring all of those things up through the Son and the Spirit to the Father. This reality is exemplified in Ephesians 2.18 where Paul says, For through him, that is Christ who died, we both Jew and Gentiles have our access in one spirit to the Father. Now isn't that the amazing thing that God himself introduces us into the presence of God again? The trifecta of approaching again the reality of this triunity of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, bringing us to the Father Not only to establish a relationship with him, but that we are able, as the writer to the Hebrews says, to draw near to who? To draw near to the throne of grace, to him, God the Father. That's the whole purpose of it. It's Jesus, the Son, who tells us what? Whenever you pray, say, Father, Father. Do you realize that very word itself is is the most grand term of invitation for us to come and it's so full of mercy and grace pray to the father it's the son who prayed to the father in his incarnation Jesus himself encouraged us to pray to the father and Paul consistently opens his letters with thanksgiving and prayer to the father that's exactly what he's doing here praise blessed be the God And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in 15, For this reason, having heard of your faith, I do not cease to give thanks for you, praying that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom in the knowledge of Him. All of it goes, it goes thanksgiving. He begins to thank. It's almost every single one of the, every single one of the epistles. He opens it up with praise to God and then prayer. For the saints. This is the mercy of God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Our devotion, our worship is to come to God. It's the ultimate aim. It lifts it, the Son lifts us up to the Father. The Spirit leads us to the Father. And it is the, both the Son and the Spirit themselves, even now, offering up intercession to whom? On our behalf. To God the Father. They make intercession for us. Not the Son in incarnation. But the Son in exaltation. Glorified. There he himself is still praying to the Father. On our behalf. The trifecta again. An advocate with the Father. Who is it? Not some mere man. But the God man. Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God enabling us to come near to the Father, interceding for us. This is the glory of God. This is the glory of His relationship with us. Fifth, and finally, 
God the Father is the supreme authority among the persons of the Godhead. I don't say superior. I say supreme. Supreme. He gets the top billing, as it were. The Father is supreme over all, and in particular, He's supreme within the Godhead as the highest authority and the one receiving, as it were, ultimate, ultimate praise. And we see this in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. He is the one who is over all and through all and in all. All that the Son did and does is for the glory of the Father. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. All that the Spirit does is to glorify the Son, and all that the Son does is manifest the Father to us. That we may be conformed to His image. It all shines back on the Father. It all goes back to the Father, the sovereign and ruling glory of the Father, the King who is eternal, immortal, invisible, the God only wise, to whom belongs salvation, honor, and praise forever. That's the way we read these things, or at least that's the way we find it as we come to the Scriptures. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 15, 24, and 28, where Paul speaks of the coming of the end. When Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when He has abolished all rule and authority, handing over the kingdom that we enter through faith in Jesus Christ, hands it over at the end. The Son of God will reign over the kingdom until the time that He's eradicated all rival authority. And then in verse 28, Paul declares, when all things are subject to Him, that is the Son, the Son Himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. That He may be over all, that He may have the glory, that He may be supremely honored and His will perfectly done in every place and every way. This is the whole purpose. Consider Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. Again, you're conscious of that, the context of Christ's self-humiliation, His condescension from heavenly glory, whereby He became obedient to the death of death on a cross. Consider again what God did as a result of that humiliation and condescension. God, we're told, exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every single name. The Father is the exalter of the Son. The Father is the one who sees that the Son has this great name and so that, as He says, that at the name of that great Son, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. But what's the end of that line? To the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Whether you wrap up the history or whether you wrap up redemption, whatever you do, it all ends with the Father. This is where it all goes. This is, when you, when you end up reading the doxologies or the, the end phrases of the New Testament letters, again, who does it end with? Now to him who is able to establish you, Romans 16, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages past, a mystery that was his will now revealed in the sending of his son, now to him... 
Now to him who is able to establish you, to perfect you according to his will and pleasure, but now is manifested that mystery by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to the nations leading to the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Amen. That's where it goes. It ends, it keeps going this way through these, through these letters. And I, uh, Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, as he, as he gets near to the end. And my God shall supply all your needs. There's the riches of God according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This God is your supplier. He'll take care of every need you have out of the abundance of the grace which he has toward you and purpose toward you. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then let me just conclude that part of it with Jude's doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, his glory, blameless with great joy. He's bringing you to himself. He's conforming you to his image in his son. He's going to bring you to glory And keep you from stumbling. He will perfect it to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Where does all the glory go? Well, it it goes to the Son. It goes to the Spirit. The, 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 The Spirit and the Son are not jealous When the Father is glorified, nor is the Father jealous when the Son is glorified, nor is the Spirit in His self-effacing ministry, as it were, hidden in His work and yet mighty in it, who is pleased to to bring the things of Christ to us and, and show us the beauty of Christ that causes us to believe upon God who ourselves have never seen His glory apart from the work of the Spirit. All of this, there, there is no jealousy, there is no div- division at all. The glory is shared, none is slighted. But I want you to understand that as the scripture reveals all of these things, where is it to end? The Father. The Father. The Father is the supreme authority among all those persons. He brings us to the Father. And I suppose some of this might sound strange in the midst of a of faithful proclamation and preaching that we proclaim Christ that we may present every man complete in him admonishing and teaching yes Christ is central but why so much is he central because he is the place where God himself is pleased the one through whom God is pleased to draw near to us that we ourselves might enter in to the enjoyment of Everything that he, the Father, is and everything that the Father intends. This is the glory of God the Father. He's not just kind of a byproduct of prayer. No, he's the very ultimate aim and goal. He's the beginning and the end. He's the source, the originator of it all, the causer of it all, the worker of it all, the planner of it all, the purposer of it all through Christ and through the Spirit that we ourselves might enjoy and have communion with him and give him thanks and glory and praise and worship.
For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. Paul says it in Romans eleven thirty six. For from him, from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, oh, our great Father. Oh, Lord, may we, as having maybe just dipped our little toes, as it were, into the waters of your truth, Father, may we begin to think afresh, Lord, anew, more fully of your fullness, the fullness of this blessed Godhead which is ours. That, Father, we would prize you in all of your triunity. Lord, we may not understand it all, but may it bring us to bring you glory. May it bring us to bow to you, to confess you, to adore you, to worship you, to believe upon you, even as we are told in 1 Peter 1 that our faith and our hope, Jesus gave himself, that our faith and our hope might be in God. Father, we trust the Son. In him is eternal life. And so, Lord God, does it come from you. Oh, Father, we thank you for the blessings that you give to us. Show us your glory. Lord, help us to understand, even as we go through the pages ourselves in our reading and our devotion, that we might see more and more of that glory. Lord, that we ourselves may be captivated, that we ourselves may be stirred in our worship, in our trust, in our obedience, in our service and life for you. For, Lord, there is none like you. Yea, we know none other. We exist for you. And so may it be manifested, Lord, in our lives, in our families, in our churches. Lord, to you be the glory. And we thank you in the name of the Son of your glory, through and in the Spirit of your glory. Amen.